This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Hello and welcome to The Bunker. I'm Roz Taylor. Some women just know how to hold a room. And graduates... It's the story that I witness every single day when I wake up in a house that was built by slaves and I watch my daughters, two beautiful black young women, head off to school, waving goodbye to their father, the president of the United States. Others don't. Good afternoon. I have just accepted... Her Majesty the Queen's kind invitation to form a new government. What makes someone a great speaker and why does it seem especially difficult for women politicians to cut through? Viv Groskop is a writer, comedian, presenter and the author of a book on public speaking. Welcome to the bunker, Viv. Hi, lovely to be here. A lot of people hate public speaking. When did you realise that you liked it? Well, I feel uncomfortable saying that I've ever realised that I liked it. Firstly, because I think it puts people off when you say that and makes it sound like liking public speaking is something that some people do and some people don't. And if you don't like it, you shouldn't do it. And I really think it's something for everyone. (laughs) And the second reason is I think it's very difficult for women in particular to say that they feel comfortable, um, which, you know, those two clips really illustrate some of that tension. But for me personally... I've always enjoyed the connection of being in front of an audience. You know, I started my career in journalism, then moved into stand-up. And I love the kind of almost like live journalistic aspect of stand-up where you're talking direct to people and you can see direct what the response is. I love that. And as I've got older and I've done that, you know, for 10 years now, I do feel more comfortable saying, do you know what? I do actually love doing this, but it's taken me a long time to get to that place. And having interviewed over 200 women for the podcast, How to Own the Room, which is kind of companion piece to the book, How to Own the Room, I know that there is nobody um, that I've spoken to on that podcast from Hillary Clinton to Margaret Atwood to Professor Mary Beard to Valerie Jarrett (laughs) who feels comfortable about public speaking all the time. And one of the things I think is really important for all of us to do is to dispel this myth that the nerves are ever going to go away. If you care about what you're doing, they do never go away. I think you're right about that, actually. That definitely resonates because there was a time, I would say about 20 years ago, when I could not really speak at all. 
in any kind of certainly making a speech to people would be completely mm. beyond me. And in some ways it still would, but it has progressively got easier to the point where I do enjoy it now. But women speak one octave higher than men. What difference does that make? I'm cautious uh, about these kind of truisms or cliches, you know, cl- cliches, stereotypes. Um, that may well be true as an average for women's voices. But there are men with very high voices. There are women with very low voices. So we all need to be cautious of not being trapped within an average that, you know, we may, none of us necessarily conform with this average. Uh, In general, um, and I noticed this in a show I was doing the other night, actually, where there was about 10 men in the room and about 90 women, um, I could hear from the response, you know, from laughter or from contributions from the audience, I could hear the tone of men's voices and how it does have that extra volume sometimes. There's a very, very different feel to an audience only of women and a mixed audience. You can feel, you know, almost like the bass Um, of a male voice a lot more easily. But I don't think that these things are necessarily a negative. I think distinctiveness of voice, distinctiveness of accent, being able to own your clarity, to really own the way that you talk that might be slightly different to the way that anyone else talks. I think those things are way more valuable than averages or stereotypes. There have been women, though, who felt it necessary to change their voices when they've moved into politics or become more senior. And of course, Margaret Thatcher was one of those, wasn't she? Yeah. So there you have an example of someone who really was trapped within a stereotype. And I don't think that in the era of Margaret Thatcher's power that anyone would have been able to escape that stereotype. You know, this is long before we had examples like Michelle Obama, Greta Thunberg, Malala, really different kinds of voices, different kinds of people who are able to talk in a way that is influential, that people want to listen to. Margaret Thatcher was operating, I would say, within very narrow parameters. So she famously worked with Laurence Olivier's voice coach to bring her voice down so that she was always speaking from the diaphragm, not speaking from the top uh, part of her chest or speaking from her throat. Um, And that's something that, you know, the actors learn to use all of the time um, so that they're projecting right to the back of the theatre. So it's a a pretty basic skill in some ways. Um, And I think you wouldn't get that now necessarily. I don't, I think it's really an example of its time and of a specific kind of person who had a specific kind of voice. I don't think that anyone would need to do that now because I think our understanding of what power and authority sounds like has changed radically in the last 30, 40 years. And I think it's changing really rapidly all of the time so that we're able to listen to lots of different kinds of voices and take authority from them in a way that we wouldn't. You know, if you think of somebody like Winston Churchill, that is the uh, example of authority and power. And it's very white, patriarchal, male. It's of a certain age. And so Margaret Thatcher was one of the first people who really had to try and break out of that and find that kind of authority. But now that we have so many influences from social media, from YouTube, from everybody who is able to put their voice out on in, on a platform, which has only happened really in the last 20 years, we have this cacophony of voices, which I think is really changing our perception of what power looks and sounds like. 
We've talked about Michelle Obama and Malala and Greta Thunberg. Who else do you rate uh, as a female political speaker? Who are the top ones who spring to mind for you? I try and avoid thinking about top uh, in inverted commas because I don't like the idea of there being a standard. I feel like when we talk about standard, we're back into that old fashioned idea of Churchill and Thatcher. And it's so outdated and it doesn't really appeal, I think, to a modern electorate at all. Um, And let's, you know, bear in mind the fact that the biggest problem with electorate globally at the moment is that generally speaking it's falling you know most people don't even engage with politics or prepare to vote uh, let alone have a favorite speaker or a politician that really appeals to them so what I'm really interested in is a variety of voices and people who really seem to be doing something authentic so for me in British Parliament, that would be people like Jess Phillips, Caroline Lucas, Angela Rayner, uh, Rosanna Allen Khan. Um, we see uh, the trade unionist Mick Lynch doing this brilliantly. Um, you know, that's a very masculine way of speaking, um, but I really love his directness and the clarity of what he says. Uh, another thing not to get trapped in is identifying with the message more than with the style if you're looking for inspiration and you're considering this question of who has power and authority because often we can be drawn to people whose political message we agree with and I really think it's important to look at all different kinds of people and all different kinds of styles so you know for example I wouldn't agree with Amber Rudd's politics or Penny Mordaunt's politics personally but I do think they have a great energy and a great speaker style what I'm really interested in is people who are trying to do something a bit different and people who are not trying to be like anyone else. In the US context, I would point at like Ruth Bader Ginsburg, Nancy Pelosi, Stacey Abrahams, Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez. You know, she's really trying to do something different. But most of all, it's people who are speaking a language that sounds like day-to-day speech. Uh, And this was a famous thing that Michelle Obama did. I've interviewed her speechwriter, Sarah Hurwitz, on the podcast, How to In The Room. And Sarah talks about who she calls Mrs. Obama. She always calls her Mrs. Obama. Mrs. Obama wanting to speak in such a way that when she spoke to a crowd, she would address them as if she were speaking to them one-to-one. So she would never use jargon. She would never use explicitly political references she would only say the sort of thing that you would turn to someone at a party and say uh, or the sort of thing you would say to a friend and I think that one-to-one everyday speech uh, is something that's really really useful and interesting to think about in the political context. Let's listen to Rosanna Allen Khan in the Commons a year ago. This country is angry and understandably so. Last Christmas while we were in lockdown Millions of people were unable to be with their families. Thousands of people waved through their care home windows at loved ones, wishing them a Merry Christmas from the side of the road. People died without that last touch from their daughters, their sons, their wives. Working in intensive care, I wept behind my mask as Three children, talking to their dying mother on an iPad, begged her to wake up. Countless children now growing up without parents, while parties were held at number 10. What are her strengths as a speaker? For me, her strength is that 
she's herself. She's completely unmistakable. You know, you could say this for um, a lot of the younger politicians around now who don't seem to feel as if they have to match up to some Etonian standard of public speaking that showcases that they have a knowledge of Greek and Latin. They're prepared to use everyday language, everyday phrases. They're not too worried about polish. You know, that's what I really like about Rosanna Allen Khan is that she isn't trying to pretend to be something that she's not. She owns those perhaps flaws and weaknesses in her voice. She doesn't try to hide the class or the background that she comes from, nor does she try to play that up. And I think we're really getting used now as an electorate and as, you know, watchers of social media and of television, we're getting used to voices that are much more raw and unpolished. And I think that is what cuts through now and that people really identify with. Do you think American women are often better at public speaking. It's something that struck me when we when we think about most powerful, I'll use powerful rather than top, because uh, I think you're right, it was the wrong word to use. When we think about some of the most powerful speakers, a lot of them are American. And is that just a cultural thing where women are more prominent in American politics? Or is it about perhaps the way that schooling works in America? and that women are encouraged to perhaps learn to speak more at school. Yeah, I've I've tackled this question a lot, and I've asked it often of people on the podcast. Um, and Hillary Clinton was very interesting on this, actually. She, she took a public speaking module as a choice at school, as an extra choice, um, when she was 14 or 15. And it was seen as being the easy option, like an easy class that you could do to get an extra credit. And everyone else in the class was not serious, not intending to have a career in law or politics as she was, not really wanting to be brilliant at debating, but just wanting to get this extra credit. So lots of the other um, students in the class, as she called it, were sports jocks who just heckled her relentlessly in these classes. So it was a great intro for her getting used to um, holding the space when people are, are really shouting at you and having a go at you, which I thought was a really lovely story. And um, I've heard really mixed views about this. You know, when you say to Americans, oh, you must have public speaking at school all of the time. And they'll, they'll say, no, we really don't. But I don't know if that's because it's so natural in their system that they don't even notice it. I agree with you that this stereotype, I think, is real, that there is that confidence. I think there is something, um, it's a very uh, generic uh, way of thinking of things, but I do think there is something in that American cultural idea of of confidence and almost verging into brashness, um, being a virtue, that it's okay. You know, this is why self-help is is so much more accepted in American culture than it is, say, in our more reticent British culture, is that to occupy space to take up people's time to to say hey everybody listen to me look at me <laughs> it's more acceptable in that culture whereas in the british cultural U- european culture I mean, you look at somebody like angela merkel or christine lagarde you would never mistake them for an american politician um, or leader 
So there is definitely some kind of generic, interesting stereotype that's going on there. I sometimes wonder if these things are to do with population mass. You know, if you are in the US, you have a much wider canvas to work on. Um, the numbers that you're talking about, if you're appealing to people or trying to become a public figure, are much bigger. And so to make an impact, you, you do have to have that bigger feel. You know, in the UK, you can appeal to a fairly small demographic and and be very famous. You know, Nigel Farage is a really great example of that. Um, so I think that that broadness does extend to people speaking. And giving speeches, it's not the same as debating, is it? Because one of the ways in which people are taught to speak or encouraged to speak at school and university is through debating, but they are different skills, it seems to me. When you're giving a political speech or when you're saying some, trying to say something particularly powerful, it's a different register, isn't it? Yeah, it's completely different. And I think in the House of Commons, you see the difficulty with this now. The UK parliamentary system is very much based on debating and it has been influenced by the way that the educational system fed men in particular into that system. So the debating that they learned at school, they repeated uh, in the House of Commons. And that's almost like a chicken and egg thing where like, we're teaching you to debate so you can use it, become a leader and use it in the in the House. And in the House, we're using the debate because that's what you learned at school. <laughs> and I think that that is, that's breaking up now. And it doesn't really work very well in a modern age, because often a modern age wants to showcase sound bites. 60 second clips that can be used on social media, those are the things that are going to be influential. And in a debate, really, the energy is motivated by your ability to counter someone else's argument, for them to counter your argument, you move back and forth. But the social media age is not interested in those two sides, it only wants to look at one side at a time. So I think that that is really being challenged, and especially by people's attention spans as well, which are getting shorter. So I think people who are able to express themselves succinctly in a style that is very clear and easy to understand, which is not necessarily a skill that you need in particularly in debating or not the most strong, not the strongest skill. Those are the people who are going to achieve connection now, as opposed to, you know, 50 years ago, when it would be more about whether you can, in inverted commas, win a debate and win a, a point of your opponent. There is another thing that troubles me about the place women have in modern speech making and modern oratory. And that is that often we are only paid attention to when we talk about being a woman. And Mary Beard said this recently, or wrote this recently. She said that we find that the same single area of license for women to talk publicly in support of their own sexual interests or to parade their victimhood. And I wonder, when will women be celebrated for what we say rather than what we have to say about being a woman? Will that come? Yeah, brilliant. Well, yes, of course. I, let's hope so. I mean, it's so boring, isn't it? It's so boring and limiting. And um, and more importantly, perhaps, it doesn't just extend to women. It's about all kinds of social groupings who are expected to constantly justify their existence and their identity and to explain various, um, you know, biases, whether it's, you know, racism or LGBTQ plus issues. 
identity politics has certainly capitalised on that trend for showcasing speakers who are brilliant about speaking (laughs) on their identity. And it is something that I find really uncomfortable as well, because I think it's incredibly limiting for our national conversation, for our cultural growth. We we should be able to talk about these things, of course, and there are so many issues that are unsolved and that are controversial. But we do need to be able to move beyond these things and not expect people. And I mean, you know, legacy media in particular, uh, especially television, still really leans on this, that people are expected to represent in some way. Um, And I think that's something that has actually become worse uh, in the last 10 years. You know, 10 years ago, you wouldn't watch something like Question Time and see Mo Molum or Claire Short and expect them to talk about being a woman. You know, you respected them as a politician. And if they talked about women, women's issues, then that's just something else interesting that they have to they want to talk about um i do think that this reductive quality is is something that has been uh really augmented um by social media as well because it's easy to get traction and numbers if you push a single issue what's my prognosis on this i guess it's um medium term cautious and pessimistic because i think it's going to be very hard to get out of this trap Um, But long term, I do think people will get bored of it and move on. Speaking of social media, how do women present themselves differently on TikTok and YouTube? Has there been a change that you've seen in that? I think the change there is really driven by a younger generation. And they, and I'm talking about anybody under 40, really. And that generation, I think, is increasingly open-minded about these pigeonholes that we're talking about and about identity. So I think it's not so easy to talk about those gender distinctions um, between men and women, um, if you're talking about TikTok and things like that, as opposed to if you were talking about people who are over the age of 40 and the trends that they would have seen in the workplace and how they would have presented themselves. I think it is much more fluid now and you're much more encouraged to present yourself as an individual rather than thinking I need to speak this way because I'm a woman or whatever people might think. I think you see those distinctions a lot less the further down the generations you go. One final thing I wanted to ask you, why is Alexa female? There is a huge, huge raft of material examining this question. (laughs) Uh, Some of it is, is I think, quite paranoid. And it's asking whether Alexa is female because Alexa is subservient and the female voice is associated with subservience. Um, Other people argue that choosing to have Alexa as a female voice causes subservience (laughs) because Alexa is becoming such a dominant sound, a dominant voice tone in our lives that perhaps it does underline that idea that a woman's voice is going to be the one who looks after you, who supports you, who accepts your instructions. Um, I think both those things are very interesting. We can't really know the truth. The research suggests and the comments that uh, tech Uh, has given about this as to why this choice was made was that focus groups in inverted commas preferred this voice whatever that means 
And there's also uh, a theory that when they were developing this AI, they had more access to recordings of women's voices than they had to recordings of male voices. And they were looking to synthesize hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of different recordings to find this voice. And they just happened to have access to more women's voices. I really would love to know why that is. You know, why is there a bank of women's voices that that is available and that's larger than the bank of men's voices. I don't understand that. Is it because when you go up into in the street and ask people for a voice sample, women are more likely to say yes than men? I don't know. Um, but there's all these competing theories. I hope ultimately that it doesn't really matter that much and that we are not so influenced by some random computer voice than we are by all these brilliant examples of amazing women speakers and speakers of all different kinds that are coming up now. And I think you're absolutely right in that. Thanks so much for joining me, Viv. Thank you so much. Viv Groskop is the author of How to Own the Room, Women and the Art of Brilliant Speaking, which is also a podcast. If you'd like to support The Bunker to carry on covering politics differently, you can back us by searching Patreon Bunker Podcast. I'm Ros Taylor. Thanks for listening. The Bunker Daily was presented by Ros Taylor. The lead producer was Jacob Jarvis, with additional production from Jack Gerbertson, Katya Tomashevich, and me, Alex Reese. Our marketing manager was Gina Richard. Music by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker is a Podnosis production. <laughs> <laughs>